Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, James the First. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rack Society, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Stuarts. We are now on to the Stuarts. We've finished with the Tudors. Um, before we get on to the Stuarts, however, we've had a few comments. Oh, yeah. Vivin or Vivan. I'm still not sure what how to pronounce that. But this is on Edgar the Peaceable. Mm. Edgar the Peaceable was a Saxon king who was very successful. He ruled peacefully for his reign there were no wars or anything like that it's very stable good economy lots of scandal where he kidnapped nuns and important question children etc did he win the rex factor he didn't win the rex factor oh, interesting. and it's been a bit of a controversy ever since people have disagreed with our decision right he sounds pretty good he was very good he did all that stuff he also had this big ceremony at the end of his reign where he was um rowed up oh, the sea the by all the other yeah, kings yeah. of britain anyway vivin we're up to Mary the First, and so far, this, Edgar the Peaceable, is the only one I believe you got wrong. Seriously, kidnapping nuns, a safe kingdom, including metaphorically safe pregnant women with sacks of gold, a serious navy, because he used to go all oh, around yeah, the country, right, yeah. and a direct approach to resolving awkwardness at court. Nice. Just because the neighbours are too scared to invade and the local troublemakers are so nervous that they take him on pleasure cruises, I don't believe he should be penalised. Edgar did decidedly better than Edward I with the Scots, for example. Oh, hang on. Mel Gibson notably was not giving Edward leisurely cruises around the local lock, nor was he politely <laughs> declining hunting trips. Being able to keep the world subdued without a war is cause alone to be nominated for the Rex Factor. He was robbed, and you know how you would treat someone who committed such a crime. Well, I acted... Oh, I'm <laughs> conflicted. Excellent uh, comment, I've got to say, Ben. Very, very good. Yeah, very good comment. And I'm with you all the way apart from your... Clearly, your <laughs> some sort of mental breakdown when you spoke about Edward. But, um, yeah, I mean, he sounds great. Why don't we give it to him? Uh, you didn't want to give it to him, mainly, I think, because he didn't go out and invade other people to do anything with his power. He just sort of sat there and enjoyed it. You wanted him to have done more and to have left more of a legacy, I think. Well, I'm going to have to listen to that one. You will, for the first time, <laughs> have a listen to one of our episodes. Anyway, thank you very much. It continues to be controversial yeah. as people catch Email up. Email in. And we've had also one from James, not James I, but uh, on Elizabeth I. He said, really enjoyed this episode, but I think you gave Drake a bit too much credit for defeating the Armada. John Hawkins probably did uh, far more to defeat the Spanish. He designed the new ships that made up the Elizabethan fleet, and during the war itself proved to be a far more reliable commander than Drake, who was a bit of a reckless glory hound. He also invented the word shark. That's brilliant. On the other hand, Drake was admittedly much cooler than Hawkins, and Hawkins did sort of invent the slave trade. <laughs> These are great. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't know he, inv- he designed the ships. That's, that's, there's so many brilliant little facts in there. So much um, of the Elizabethan era, of course, that we could only touch upon. Yeah, so I probably yeah, just yeah. simplified it a bit too much by um, mm. just crediting everything to Drake. So thanks, James. Excellent facts again, particularly the word <laughs> shark. But now, on to James I. Okay. He's born 19th of June, 1566. He's the son of a man called Henry Stuart, or Lord Darnley, and Mary, Queen of Scots. 
He's the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh, that's the one. That's the other one. Yeah, with you. Not, not Mary, Mary the first. <laughs> not the ship, but this time, yes. that one I'm thinking of, yeah. And James becomes King of England in 1603, when he's 37 years old. And in terms of his relationship to Elizabeth II, he is her ninth great-grandfather. Getting closer. Suddenly a much more direct mm. and Single smaller figures. number. Now, before we come on to James, it's probably useful quickly to just say who the Stuarts are as a dynasty and why it is yeah. that the Scots are now ruling England. So, initially, Stuarts, um, they were high stewards of Scotland. Oh, right. So, a sort of noble family. They were actually sort of almost like governors or regents. So they weren't um, just sort of running the household of the king or whatever. They were these sort of powerful figures, and particularly when there was an absence of a king. They would sort of... So that's where the name comes from, their stewards. That's where the name comes from. In terms of their claim to the Scottish throne, um, this comes from a woman called Marjorie Bruce. She was the only legitimate child of Robert the Bruce, legendary... Of Braveheart fame. Of Braveheart fame. Yeah. Anyway, Robert the Bruce, who famously defeated Edward II at Bannockburn, regardless of what he may or may not have done mm. in Braveheart, um, she was imprisoned in a cage uh, by Edward I. Legend. When she was uh, nine years old. Probably a very reasonable London, thing to do. Indeed. Uh, but then was released by Edward II and married a man called Walter Stewart, who was the sixth high steward of Scotland. And so thus the Stuarts have married the only legitimate child of the King of Scotland. Right. Uh, but as a daughter, of course, she doesn't... That line, yeah. Inherits the throne. She dies in 1316, uh, having fallen from her horse and then giving birth because she was heavily pregnant. Ooh. So dies at 20. Uh, but her son, Robert Stuart, becomes king in 1371 at the age of 55 years old. Right. So he becomes Robert II. So he is descended from Walter Stuart and Marjorie Bruce. So that's how we get the Stuarts as a royal dynasty in Scotland. Yeah, okay. In terms of linking to England, we go back to a child of Henry VII, namely Margaret Tudor. She was oh, his sister. She was Henry the Seventh's eldest daughter, so a yeah. sister of Henry the Eighth. Yeah. She married James the Fourth of Scotland, and thus is the mother of James the Fifth. And she later marries Archibald Douglas, another Scottish lord, and is the grandmother of Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Right. So Mary Queen of right. Scots and Lord Darnley marry. We've got Scottish royal blood, and we've got English Tudor royal blood in there. It's quite. It seemed quite safe. I mean, it seems quite a reasonable... It's definitely solid. Do. So, James, in uh, 1603, very much the mm. obvious candidate. OK. In terms of his appearance, um, this is largely the common sort of way in which James had been seen, and it's from a man at the time called Sir Anthony Weldon. His eyes are large, ever-rolling. Sounds like a comedian. Moving around, yes. His beard was very thin, his tongue too large for his mouth, which made it's him... It's a chameleon. Yes. It's <laughs> definitely a chameleon. <laughs> which made him drink very uncomely, as if eating his drink, which came out of his cup each side of his mouth. His walk was ever circular, his fingers ever in that walk fiddling with that codpiece. <laughs> he would never change his clothes until worn to rags. So this is how James has often been seen, and very negative... So who was that from? Is that we? This is a man called Sir Anthony Weldon. However, Anthony Weldon was fired by James mm. um, after writing an insulting report of his visit to Scotland, where, amongst other things, he says the air might be wholesome, but for the stinking people that inhabit it. So James fires him for writing this, and afterwards, Weldon writes all these really damning reports of James. Okay, he was probably about middling height, thick and fair hair, sad, sort of heavy lidded eyes, long nose, small mouth. And he had quite broad shoulders, so he's a very good horseman, but he had um, bent legs because he suffered rickets in childhood. 
Right. So he probably wasn't a great walker. <laughs> no, exactly. But what he did with his cod piece is... Uh, <laughs> it's his business. His business. Now, he had a very difficult upbringing, James. Um, his father, uh, Lord Darnley, he was murdered in 1567. The house was blown up and he was stabbed or strangled outside. Mm-hmm. Mary married the man who killed Darnley. Oh, that's right, yeah. Then she was forced to abdicate in 1567. So James became James VI of Scotland when he was just 13 months old. Meanwhile, Mary escaped in 1568, leading to an ongoing conflict between nobles in Scotland. So it's very violent, um, right from the word go. There were four regents while James was growing up. Earl of Moray was assassinated in 1570. The Earl of Lennox, James's grandfather, was killed in 1571. Mm. And James, as a young boy, saw his bloodied body being carried away. The Earl of Mar died of natural causes in 1572. And then finally, the Earl of Morton was executed in 1581. By? Uh, by rival oh, nobles, of course. So three of the four people who are regent for James are killed. Why didn't they just kill James? Well, James is the pawn by which everybody else oh, right, seeks okay. to control the kingdom. Yeah. He was also kidnapped by the Earl of Gowrie in um, 1582, so it's a very perilous life mm, for James. Um, in terms of his education, a man called Buchanan taught him Latin, Greek, French, Italian and Spanish. He was able to translate aloud chapters of the Bible from Latin into French and then from French into English. So he's a very intelligent, scholarly intellectual, but he was also beaten quite severely by Buchanan and he was taught that his mother was a wicked adulteress who had murdered his father. Apparently he used to tremble in adult life whenever he saw anyone that looked like Buchanan. It's still... That's horrible. Scared him. So he had a really horrible upbringing. But in 1583, he escapes from the Earl of Gowrie and he assumes the full reins of government when he's sort of 16, 17 years old. Mm. So he's now got a chance to take control of his own destiny. However, he does have trouble for a man called um, Bothwell. Now, this is not the same Bothwell who married Mary after killing his father, but he is a sort of relation. He is accused of sponsoring um, some witchcraft against James. So when James went off to marry his wife... Um, who was from Denmark, and he crossed the sea and there were lots of storms, it was claimed that this Bothwell chap had paid a witch to conjure up storms to make everything go awry. Right. So this man becomes something of an enemy of James, and from the 1590s he basically is Cato from the Pink, Pink Panther films. I, he just pops up all the time, <laughs> unexpectedly, trying to kill or kidnap James. Brilliant. So there are various times where there's one where he um, besieges James in, his, in a tower with lots of men and then gets sent off, jumps out of corridors or appears out of privies, crouching with knives. So it's proper baddie. He just appears out of Proper yeah. baddie. He never actually does anything to no. James. He just sort of jumps out and goes, <laughs> yeah. and then runs and off sort of into the night. Um, but once he's dealt with, James is able to pretty much take control in Scotland. He re-establishes royal authority, much better than any of the previous Stuart monarchs. He was fairly tolerant of Catholics, but also kept this sort of Presbyterian kirk mm. in order. So he's keeping control over the religious disputes right. in Scotland. And also getting the nobles to be subservient to him in a way which they really hadn't been mm. previously. Mm. In terms of his relationship with Mary Queen of Scots, because... Um, she'd been kicked off and sent off and gone into exile in England when he was only a year or so old. He never really actually knew her or indeed met her. What was it she was doing there? She wanted to have uh, Elizabeth's support. But did Elizabeth lock her up? Or Elizabeth locked her up from 1568 until she was executed in 1587. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And James demonstrates very limited affection for her. And although he makes a bit of a protest after she's executed, he doesn't make a massive fuss. No, you'd expect quite a fuss. 
And yeah, he certainly doesn't throw his toys out of the pram. The reason is that his prime policy as King of Scotland is to become King of England. He links in with her chief minister in her final years, Robert Cecil, and they conducted secret negotiations and correspondence, so Cecil urged him to be patient, to flatter Elizabeth in all of his letters, and Elizabeth came to sort of tacitly acknowledge the idea that she might not mind too much if James were to succeed her. Right. She never acknowledges him as successor, and she, never... She doesn't do that to anyone, though, Never acknowledges anyone, but yeah. she does say that unless he gives her due cause, she wouldn't hinder him. It's pretty good, it's pretty good. So it's a, a nod and a wink, yeah. in effect. But, 1603, Elizabeth dies, becomes king. But it was difficult for James, because there's a very difficult legacy. If we recall the 1590s, things hadn't been going so well for Elizabeth. So we've got an ongoing war with Spain. Oh, yeah. Ireland, the war just concluding, but it's still all in a bit of a mess. Religious tensions are growing, Puritans and Catholics mm. really at loggerheads. We've got tensions in Parliament and real difficulties with raising money and taxation and revenue for the sort of royal household. So a lot of difficulties that James inherits. He's right. not taking over from a, a golden age, as it were. I, I have seen the film. Well, it, golden age. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So we'll go through all of those difficulties in terms of how we structure the reign. So first of all, we're going to look at how James deals with religion. Okay. Catholic expectations are very high because James had given some encouraging soundings to Catholic nobles that had contact with him before he became King of England, in particular Thomas Percy and uh, the Earl of Northumberland, who were sort of Catholics, sort of behind the scenes. So they're quite hopeful that James is going to actually get rid of some of the restrictive laws of Elizabeth, make it a bit more mm-hmm. friendly, if not actually be Catholic. And he is of tolerant disposition. 1603, when he's processing down, he is presented with the millenary petition. This is where a sort of a thousand Puritans sign this petition to James with a plea for church reform. So Puritans, very much the sort of opposite end to Catholics, very, very austere Protestants. Mm. James, open to debate, if it's framed nicely, so he says, OK, we're going to have a great big conference and we're going to decide everything about religion. So 1604, we'd have the Hampton Court Conference. James presides over this grand conference to establish a new religious uh, settlement. So we've got Anglicans, Puritans, not so much the Catholics, obviously. But nevertheless, we've got different religious views. James presides over it, largely secures an Anglican settlement rather than Puritan. Um, But the big thing that comes out of this is that he commissions a new translation of the Bible. Ah, of course. One authorised version, which, when published in 1611, becomes known as the King James Bible. But this isn't the first English Bible, is it? It's not the first English one. There have been different translations. That's yeah. the problem. There wasn't one sort of accepted translation. Okay, that's so what this, this is intended to do. And that was sort of ratified at this conference? Yes. Oh, well, 1611 when it's finally published, but it's at okay. this conference that they... Say, yeah. Okay. Let's do it. However, he does face some threats from Catholics. As soon as he comes in, 1603, there's the by-plot, uh, where a Catholic pl- uh, priest plans to kidnap James and force him to issue a general toleration. Doesn't come to anything. There's then the main plot, where some Spaniards plotted with English Catholics to replace James with his cousin, Arabella Stuart. Um, but nevertheless, that's dealt with easily, and James continues to be tolerant. Um, no repressive measures, and he indeed suspends these sort of fines against the people that refer- uh, refuse to go to... Anglican ceremonies. Right, okay, so he's doing... He's doing an Edgar the Peaceable. Indeed. But, in 1605, something big happens. It's the gunpowder plot. Yes! 
The plot, for anyone who doesn't know, was to blow up the Houses of Parliament um, on the 5th of November when it met. Um, as a prelude to a popular revolt in the Midlands, they'd then crown uh, the daughter of James, who is uh, Princess Elizabeth, and raise her as a Catholic monarch. Right. So restore England to Catholicism. In terms of his personnel, it was led by a man called Robert Catesby, who was this sort of good-looking, inspiring figure, um, and also various other people like Catesby, who'd been allied to the Earl of Essex, who'd led a rebellion against Elizabeth in 1601. Yeah. And also, most famously, a man called Guy Fawkes, or Guido, as he liked to call himself, who was a Catholic mercenary who'd been fighting for Spain on the continent. And because he was a soldier, he was experienced with gunpowder, so he was the man who's going to be responsible for lighting the fuse. So he really, he was uh, just a man for hire. He wasn't... Yeah, he wasn't the leader and he wasn't a noble figure or anything like that. And he wasn't even English? No, he was English, but because he'd been fighting as a mercenary in Spain, he called himself Guido, but he was actually English. Um, Also, importantly, Thomas Percy, if you recall, he was one of the people that went to see James early on and was hopeful, a distant Mm. relation to the Earl of Northumberland, but he joins in as well with the plotters. And he's got a minor position at court, so he's able to get fairly close to all of this. In terms of their methodology, initially what they do is they rent a small house near Westminster, near the Palace of Westminster, and they plan to dig a tunnel from their house to Parliament. But they found that that was quite hard. (laughs) And they also found out that they could just lease a cellar underneath Parliament and put the gunpowder there. Really? So they decided to do that instead. good idea. In the name of uh, Thomas Percy, of course, could afford it and has links to court. However, they are betrayed. The Monteagle letter, an anonymous letter sent to a Catholic Earl at Parliament, warns him to avoid going on the 5th of November. They don't say exactly why, but they just say, you'd better stay clear if I were you. Wouldn't go. Letter is passed on to Robert Cecil. He passes it on to James, and they have a pretty good idea of what's going on. But they decide to let things continue so they can catch them in the act. Good idea. So... Night of 4th of November, a search is ordered, and sometime around about midnight, Guy Fawkes is captured with 36 barrels of gunpowder. God, that would do it, wouldn't it? It would have completely destroyed Houses of Parliament, all the sort of windows in sort of the surrounding area, everyone inside, and for quite a big radius would have been killed. It would have been huge. Definitely wow. would have worked. Yeah, so it definitely got everyone to... Yeah. yeah. It would have been, still, in this country, the biggest terrorist incident that there'd ever been. Wow. It really was huge. Wow. Mm. Crumbs. They had about twice as much gunpowder as they needed. (laughs) You've got to be sure, I suppose, haven't you? Oh, yes. Better safe than sorry. So, they are unsuccessful. The rest of the conspirators fled to the Midlands while um, Guy Fawkes initially resisted giving their names, but then he was pretty brutally tortured, mm. which James gave the orders to do. Uh, fled to the Midlands, where they hoped to get the uprising going, but it turned out no one really supported them anyway. Mm. So at a place called Holbeach on the 8th of November, last stand against the royal forces, Catesby and Percy are killed back-to-back by one bullet. Wow. Go through both of them. <laughs> Why has there been a film about this? I know, it's an amazing story. But we all know the story, that's brilliant. We do, and um, the others, of course, are captured and executed. But the legacy is pretty huge. So the citizens of London were encouraged to light bonfires in celebration of uh, their deliverance from this attack. And of course, remember, remember, the 5th of November. It's worked. I do. Exactly. It's a warning that Catholics are still dangerous and could one day... uh, And they're still about. (laughs) They are still there. I've heard this. They're they're there somewhere. (laughs) They're still out there. 
Afterwards, um, an oath of the allegiance is introduced, which makes it very difficult for Catholics to serve in office because they have to effectively go against their faith in order to do this allegiance. So things get a little bit more stringent against Catholics after the gunpowder plot. Right, but it's still pretty <clears throat> tolerant as a whole. Still pretty tolerant, all things considering. Mm, yeah. Next up, foreign policy. Okay. As we said, 1603, James inherits a country which has just concluded war with Ireland and is at war with Spain. Mm-hmm. Not For a good position. James, first thing he does, pretty much, he forbids piracy and privateering, which Elizabeth had sanctioned against Spain. So yeah, James says, yeah. no more piracy, no more attacking Spanish ships, leave them alone. And then 1604 at Somerset House, they sign a peace treaty with Spain. Why is Spain complicit in this? Surely they'd want to... Well, they've had a pretty hard sort of ten years of yeah, war and failed armada and stuff yeah. as well. So both countries have really economically okay. suffered from this. Mm. So they sign a peace treaty. Um, James then seeks a marriage alliance with his son Charles and the Spanish Infanta. None of this particularly popular with England, who for generations have hated the Spanish, but nevertheless, James has secured peace. England is no longer at war with Spain. Big tick. Big tick. In Ireland, things still tense because they'd had a peace treaty in 1603, but the rebel earls, particularly Hugh O'Neill, were still there. There's still this tension, but it was getting increasingly hard for the native Irish earls to secure their position at court, and particularly once England's made peace with Spain, there's no longer the promise that the Spanish will send troops to help yeah. any rebellion. Yeah. So in 1607, we have a thing called the Flight of the Earls, where Hugh O'Neill and um, various other sort of, uh, lords flee to the continent, hoping against all hope for Spanish intervention um, to secure their position, get troops in, kick the English out. Doesn't go very well, though. No, I've never this. Dramatic story. They go all across sort of France, all across the continent, make it to Rome, but they can't get the support that they need. With them gone, the powerful noble leaders are no longer there. So James thinks, ah, that opens up a bit of a potential here to sort out the old Irish problem. So he starts the Ulster Plantation. This is where he gets English and indeed particularly Scottish people to come in and settle County of Ulster in Ireland. Right. While the native Irish are kicked out and sent to settle in the West. Not very popular with the native Irish, but probably in the short term it does help to restore royal control over Ireland which had been completely lacking mm. in Elizabeth's reign. Okay. And also he makes some alliances with Protestants aboard. So in 1613, his daughter Elizabeth is married to Frederick the Elector Palatinate. And so where's he from? Where is he from? He's sort of Germany, sort of area, Rhineland right. sort of area. And he enters into an alliance with the German Protestant Union. However, a bigger issue for James is his relationship with Parliament, which under Elizabeth has become much more powerful. Why is that? Why was she... Well, particularly, well, Mary and Elizabeth, and of course Edward being a minor, the three Tudor children of Henry VIII, have sort of relied on Parliament to give them legitimacy, particularly Mary when she had the conflict with Lady Jane Grey, and Elizabeth has had less money than Henry VIII because he's bent it all, there's less power, they've got threats from abroad, so they're much more reliant on getting their money and things like that through Parliament, so Parliament's having more of a say in everything. And the more say it gets, the more say it wants. Yeah. James, of course, has come from Scotland, where the Parliament wasn't particularly powerful, so he's not really prepared for all of this. And he has two big aims for what he wants to get out of it. Political union with Scotland, i.e. Great Britain, and a financial deal for better royal income. Haven't we effectively already got union by him becoming king? We've got what's called the personal union, or union of the crown, so he's king of England and Scotland. 
but he wants one united state. In the same way that Elizabeth, say, is nominal head of Australia and New Zealand, but they're separate countries. Yes. Okay. He's saying, I'm king of them both, they're connected geographically, why can't they just be one country? Wouldn't that be much it's easier? easier. Admin. It's much easier. Call it Great Britain. Yeah. Brilliant. In terms of Great Britain, he styles himself and calls himself King of Great Britain, um, but the Commons completely oppose a political union, and they would only really agree to get rid of hostile legislation, extradition of prisoners, and a union flag. They'd, they'd agree to a union flag? They agree to have a flag, which can put in ships and that sort of thing, but politically they're not going to combine. Meanwhile, in Scotland, they're not very keen because they think they're just going to get annexed and become part of England. Yeah, so is, is James is presumably having to spend quite a bit of his time back up in Scotland, so there isn't a revolt up there, him saying he's just an English He only king. visits once after really? he becomes Eng- a king of so England. So he must have been pretty secure up there. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah very secure, yeah. Right, so, and so on the English side, they're happy to have flags in their ships. So, so fight alongside the Scottish? Mm. Okay, so Nothing too to... unified. They're symbols, like he can call himself King of Britain, they have a flag, they have coins... No actual legal union. So it's a bit union. more like it is now, in that there's mm. now, it's now devolved. Yes, although obviously there is still quite a bit they of can vote in the political English Parliament, things. Yeah. Anyway, he fails to get that through. In terms of finance, he inherits a very difficult position, increasingly under strain from the 1590s. He wants a permanent solution. He'd been poor as a Scottish king, so he doesn't have his own wealth to bring. Robert Cecil, 1610, puts forward a thing called the Great Contract, which proposes that James will surrender some of his feudal rights in return for a guaranteed income from Parliament. However, the deal falls through, Parliament dissolves in 1611, and Robert Cecil dies in 1612, with the support of the Commons effectively lost. So Robert Cecil was, um, was Elizabeth's man as well. Yeah. So was he, was he on James's side? Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's failed. 1614, we have the adult Parliament, another attempt at a subsidy, but lots of complaints and grievances... Uh, from Parliament mean that he gets rid of, uh, dissolves it after a few months without any legislation being passed at all. Adult because of it being it achieved rubbish. nothing at okay, all. Yeah. Um, he then appoints a businessman called Lionel Cranfield, who is made Lord Chancellor. He introduces numerous household reforms, makes some efficiency savings, but there's still no long-lasting solution. They've still got a problem they haven't found a way to resolve. His final years, James suffers a bit of a decline, frequently suffers from ill health, uh, arthritis, gout, kidney stones, not very great stuff. His eldest son, Prince Henry, dies in 1612. His wife, Anne, dies in 1619. And he's increasingly dominated by his second son, Charles, and his big, big favourite, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. Do we know him? We will know him later in this episode. <laughs> so he is still dominated by favourites. Right. And Parliament doesn't like it. Yeah. But we're now getting to the stage, of course, where Parliament not liking it is more of a national issue than just an inconvenience. Yeah. We also, unfortunately, in the foreign policy, things take a turn for the worst. We have the start of the Thirty Years' War. Because Frederick, his now son-in-law, mm-hmm. Elector Platinate, accepted the throne of Bohemia. But unfortunately, the Holy Roman Emperor felt that he had a claim to the throne of Bohemia. And so they go to war, and Spain as well join in. So, but we'd be fighting with the Spanish Empire. No, because Spain are allied to the Holy Roman Empire. James is the father-in-law of the guy that they're fighting against. I and thought he married into the Spanish family, sorry. No, no, the actor Platina is Protestant. Okay. Right. He wanted to marry his son to the Spanish Infanta, yeah. but he hadn't yeah. managed it. Okay. So England is Protestant, Frederick is Protestant, 
and now we've got war in Europe, 30 years war, and England is getting dragged into it, and he doesn't want it. Unfortunately for James, everyone really, really wants war. Parliament's (laughs) quite keen on it, the public's really keen on it. Uh, 1621, he he does ask Parliament for money for war, even though he's not very keen, but Commons want all-out war, and yet are so angry at corruption that they're not willing to give him any money. What? It's very confusing, it's quite self-defeating, but they're more upset with all the corruption at court than they are with actually fighting Spain. But at the same time, they really want to have a crack. (laughs) Yes. Right. (laughs) So, um, they reject various proposals, call for Prince Charles to marry a Protestant... Mm. which is completely against what James is after, and indeed telling him how to marry his yeah. own son. Cranfield loses power, and he's kicked out. He's impeached. Um, and James is furious. He responds that foreign policy was his prerogative, not Parliament's. And as a result, Parliament lodges a formal protest about parliamentary privilege. Um, this is the first time we're seeing something like this, then. Mm. And so Parliament ends, 1622, nothing resolved. That's hopeless. 1624 Parliament, James really is probably losing control, but he still resists a formal declaration of war against Spain. He suffers a stroke towards the end of the year, and then 1625, the age of 58, he dies. Straight away, I'm less impressed than I thought it was going to be, but let's see how he does. Let's see how he does in the review. Battleliness! Well, in terms of the good stuff, as we said, he is a diplomatic bigwig. In Europe, if we compare it everywhere else, you asked about France. Mm. Henri Navarre, Henry IV, was assassinated in 1610. Louis XIII, just a child king. In Spain, Philip III lacked the power of the uh, sort of the classic baddie Philip II. Germany, he's married his daughter to the elector Palatinate. So, he, you know, he's a big player mm. on the European stage. And England is secure throughout this process. There's no threat of invasion um, in the way that obviously had been very much present under Elizabeth. England is safe and secure. Yeah, yeah, that's true. On the other hand, there are no battles of any kind whatsoever. Yeah, this is the problem. There is literally no fighting, quite specifically avoided at all costs. Yeah, um, I, that's... He, it's as if he didn't want to score here. It's almost as if he didn't realise yeah. that in 400 uh, years' time this would really matter. Have we matter. had this? Have we even... We haven't... Have we ever experienced no war in a reign with someone that ruled for more than five years, say? I don't, I don't really think so, no. It's, well, it's, I mean, it's a zero. It this has is, to be a zero. This is terrible. It sort of seems harsh, but, you know, there is no battliness. Mm. Very specifically, no battliness. So it has to be a zero for battliness. Scandal. He's definitely better here. Excellent. First up, Sir Walter Raleigh. Yeah, I know him. That's fine. You do know him? He's never particularly popular in the reign of Elizabeth, apart from Elizabeth herself. Seen as a bit of an upstart, um, and he lost all his positions under James, because Robert Cecil and other people at court are saying, oh, you, I wouldn't trust Raleigh, he's a bad This is why we barrack. like him, though, in history, that he's Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah, that's why we like him now. He was loosely implicated in the main plot, very right. early in James' reign, and as a result was imprisoned in the Tower of London. Very little evidence for it. The judge at the trial said that the justice of England has never been so degraded and endured as by the condemnation of the Honourable Sir Walter Raleigh. So it's a sense of false imprisonment. It's Mm. not very fair. And he's locked up sort of from there on in pretty much. However, in 1616, he is released by James on the Brizido that he will go off on the Orinoco expedition because he claims that there is loads and loads of gold in the valley of the River Orinoco off in America. So he says, let me go, I'll get some gold, 
bring it back and you'll be rich. So James says, okay, I don't like you, but I really want some money. Off he goes and he's told, you've got to find me some gold. Don't do any of that piracy stuff you used to do and on no account attack any Spanish ships. Unfortunately, he didn't find any gold. One of his captains attacked a Spanish outpost and um, his eldest son, unfortunately, was killed in a firefight. So it didn't really go according to plan. No. No, um, surefire way of getting hold of some gold if he'd captured some of those galleons coming back from South America. Indeed, but he didn't. So he comes back with no gold and he is put to death. I haven't heard this at all. I never knew he came to a sticky end. Very sticky end. 1618, partly urged on by a Spanish ambassador at court who saw him as an enemy, as he had been in the 1580s and still saw him in this way. Uh, apparently quipped on the scaffold that the axe was a sharp physician, but a cure for all ills. Huh? And uh, <laughs> I like it when they have little sarky things <laughs> at the end of their lives. It all boils down to this one moment. Yes. Oh, brilliant. Always quick-witted with Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, but in terms of the reaction, that he was the last figure of the Elizabethan Golden Age. All the other Tudors mm. and Elizabethans are dead. Raleigh was the last one. Where's Drake in all this? Oh, Drake died in the uh, 1590s. Right, okay. So, even though Raleigh hadn't been unpopular, uh, hadn't been popular before, he's now seen as being executed to appease the evil Spanish that everybody hates. So he suddenly becomes oh, this great hero. Oh, that's legend, right. Yes. Yeah. So that's not particularly good for James. Mm. He has a very coarse court, not quite as couth and cultured as people were used to under Elizabeth. So lots of diaries and letters at the time observe rather um, disapprovingly of some of the culture, particularly a visit of Christian IV of Denmark, where apparently the entertainment went forward and most of the presenters went backwards or did fall down. Because they were so drunk. Hope, so that all these sort of um, metaphorical characters, Hope did try to speak, but wine rendered her endeavour so feeble that she withdrew. Charity returned to Hope and Faith, who were both sick and spewing in the lower hall. Mm. So all this drunkenness and debauchery mm. at court, not what was going under under Elizabeth, of no. course. He had rather anatomical humour, apparently. Liked a joke and some rude words, very vulgar at times, and could be very blunt um, with people. He could very just sharp and say things. There was one Scottish Presbyterian minister, apparently, he said, I give not a turd for your preaching. <laughs> Oh, good. Almost sort of reminiscent yeah. of William Rufus. Yeah. This is a yeah, rude yeah. quote. And it's quite a culture shock um, for people at English court. James, very strong Scottish accent. And uh, the appearance of all these Scottish favourites in England is quite a shock to all these Elizabethans who'd been at war with Scotland for the last 500 years. Yeah. So, you know, it's a bit of a... Well, they need a bit of a uh, shot in the arm, I reckon. Maybe, maybe. What they're not too um, keen to have a shot of is James's alleged homosexuality. Really? Again, redolent of uh, William Rufus. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. James does have a thing for attractive male young favourites upon whom he lavishes lots of attention and honours. And he does tend to dislike women. What's going on with his wife? We'll come to her. Right, OK. First off, um, his first love is a man called Esme Stuart Daubeny. Uh, or Daubeny, who's his um, a sort of Franco-Scottish cousin. Uh, very sleek, fashionable, visits Scotland when James is 13. It's Nothing goes on, but... Yeah, it's confusing, because I had painted in my picture, like, Rabsy Nesbitt. Yes. <laughs> and now... Um, Rabsy Nesbitt, who... Who's king and a bit gay. A bit, a bit gay. Uh, but the big 
Um, favourite for him, as we said, was Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers. He emerges as a 22-year-old at court when James is sort of, you know, his late 40s, early 50s. Tall, slightly effeminate beauty, very attractive face. Rises rapidly through the period, so he becomes a Viscount in 1616, and he's then Duke in 1623. And that's the highest you can be, isn't it? That's the highest you can go. He's the only non-royal to be made a Duke from 1485 to 1660. I've definitely heard of this bloke. So that's a pretty strong uh, mm. level of favouritism that he's um, given. And indeed, James, um, when pushed a few times by Parliament, who didn't like Buckingham, hated him, absolutely hated and wanted to impeach him. And he said to them in Parliament, You may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else, and more than you who are here assembled. Christ has his John, i.e. the Baptist, and I have my George. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, refers to him in lots of sort of affectionate nicknames. <laughs> Sir Francis Osborne at the time said that the love the king showed was as amorously conveyed as if he had mistaken their sex and thought them ladies. Um, <laughs> there which, must be some mistake. <laughs> which I have seen Buckingham and Somerset labour to resemble in the effeminateness of their dresses. <laughs> and indeed, there was an epigram at the time which apparently said that Elizabeth was king, now James is queen. Oh, that's a bit mean. That? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it was probably the, yeah. uh, the gutter press, no, no doubt. Red tops. Now, you asked about his wife, Anne of Denmark. He did, you know, initially, there was some strong romance. Indeed, James's one really romantic gesture in his entire life, as some historians have said, was when there was that bad weather for which witchcraft was mm. blamed. She was in Denmark. Her ship couldn't make it across because of the weather. Mm. So James, overcome with sort of romantic bravura, gathers up his uh, fleet and sails off to Denmark himself. Braving the storms. Braving the storms. Off oh, he goes. That's nice. Spends about three months with her, getting to yeah. know each other. Apparently she was um, sort of typical Scandinavian beauty, so sort of quite tall, beautiful, blonde hair, blue eyes, all that sort of thing. Because you said he came to England with two sons. They yes. were of... Of her. Yes, yeah, so initially, you know, they have quite a few children together. Initially a strong relationship, but they later grow apart. She Intellectually, she's not really on James's level, so she is seen by him as being a bit interested in trivial things like jewellery and pretty things and... Mm not intellectual finery. And also, I'm afraid, we've got another uh, dog incident when um, they went hunting one time and she accidentally shot his favourite dog. She's shooting dogs now. This is this is unbelievable. It's obviously a, a common problem in the early modern England. Yeah. Shooting dogs. This was accidental, though. She didn't mean to do it. So we've got the uh, Walter Riley's murder, the homosexuality, and another one of his favourites, um, Robert Carr, who became the Earl of Somerset, was involved in the murder of Lord Overbury. This sounds good. Very good. Robert Carr was a Scottish favourite, so mm. vast, very unpopular in England. Brought over to England, made the Earl of Somerset, and before Buckingham came on the scene, he was James's sort of chief favourite. He has an affair with a woman called Frances Howard. Lady Frances Howard, the daughter of Earl of Suffolk. She was married to the Earl of Essex, who was Lord Overbury. However, she doesn't much think much of him, thinks a lot of Somerset, and she demands a divorce from Overbury on the grounds of non-consummation, which is rather embarrassing for Lord Overbury. Yeah. He doesn't really want to pray along with it. James tries to send him off to an overseas posting to get him out of the way for his friends, but he refuses it. So as a result, he is imprisoned in the Tower of London, where he dies in 1613, of course leaving Francis and Somerset free to marry, which they do in James's presence. In 1615... Helwis, the lieutenant of the Tower of London, makes it known that um, he's pretty sure that Francis Howard arranged for Lord Overbury to be poisoned. It's a bit convenient, isn't it? 
is very convenient. Mm. And James realises that this is a bit of a sticky situation because given that he imprisoned Overbury in the Tower and then was there when they married, he's pretty much implicated in all of this. Yeah, totally. So he very much steps back and says, right, I'm wiping my hands clean of you two. Um, so they go to trial, are sentenced to death. James... Well, who... But, uh, the uh, wife, man Francis wife. Howard and Somerset. Sentenced oh. to death because, you know, they're guilty. <laughs> they literally <laughs> yeah. poisoned this man and weren't very subtle in doing so. Right. James commutes the sentence to imprisonment, but they completely fall from grace. Kicked out. Yeah, but there's still... There's a bit of a love story there, that's fine. Oh, yeah, definitely a bit yeah. of a love story there. But, you know, we've got yeah. murder... Homosexuality, the execution of Walter Riley, coarse court, swearing. All this is good. This is good really rather good. It's the best we've seen for what? I mean, apart from him. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so we've got sex, fiddling with his codpiece. Yes, I feel like Because he's got a coarse court. Yeah. Rabsy Nesbit. Yes. Murder of Walter Riley. Uh, murder of Overbreak. This is really good. Mm. This is a six or a seven. I think so. I think I'm giving him a seventh scandal here. Yeah, I think I'll go seven. I think this is really juicy, really good sub, um, scandal we haven't yeah. seen the like of for a while. So that is 14 for scandal. A good score. Yeah, that is really good. Well done, James. Yeah, well done. Subjectivity. So there's quite a lot for subjectivity, more than for anything else. So first of all, the good stuff. The good stuff. We marked him down heavily for his lack of battliness, mm-hmm. but the reason he didn't have any battliness is that he pers- uh, um, pursues the policy of Rex Pacifus i.e. peace. Right. King he specifically peace. wants to rule with peace. He immediately forbids attacks on Spanish ships, signs the peace treaty, and England does ultimately remain at peace throughout his reign, which is more than you can say for most reigns, to remain at peace. Yeah, is that is that his skillful diplomacy or the um, awkward positions of others in, on the continent? Well, it's obviously it's a bit of both, but it is an active policy. James 1604 um, described this policy, saying that by peace abroad with their neighbours, the towns flourish, the merchants become rich, the trade doth increase, and the peoples of all sorts of the land enjoy free liberty. Yeah. So he specifically wants peace because it is better for the people, but better then for his country. Getting richer. Or is he expanding elsewhere? Well, they they lose so much money with the wars with Spain and with Ireland. They're not gaining from all of this. But what about his? Um, have we got any? Have we got any? Um, Colonialism. Empire? We do, but it's not through warfare. Okay, so we'll, we'll cover that. it, but yeah. it's not through battliness. Okay, yeah. so that's you know, I think that's a fairly admirable. I think it's done. <laughs> yeah, it's done jolly well. Yeah, yeah. you'll accept that. I'll accept it. We've what, seen Edgar the Peaceable didn't do very well yeah. when he didn't invade other countries, and James should have learnt the lesson. Yeah. The religious settlement. As he said, he's tolerant, not a religious fanatic, inclined towards toleration. Penal laws are much more leniently enforced than they were under Elizabeth. Hampton Court Conference in 1604, he presides over this open debate between Puritans and Anglicans. He allows people to actually Mm. discuss things. They don't have to just conform to what he says. And 1603, he wrote to Cecil saying, I did ever hate alike both extremities in any case of religion, only allowing the middles for virtue. I will never allow in my conscience that the blood of any man shall be shed for diversity of opinion in religion, but I would be sorry that Catholics should multiply as they might be able to practice their old principles upon us. I.e. he's pragmatic, he doesn't want to kill people just because of their religion, but he's also going to make sure that you don't have this conflict and that Catholics don't try and become the main religion again. This so is it's going good. to be Protestant, but not through blood. 
Uh, so, so I suppose if he, if he, I've got to assume that he's. Well, we know he's trying to do everything peacefully, and in doing that, he does jolly well. Yes. Um, through this um, culture of um, discussion and debate, mm. and securing peace, in, or not securing peace in Europe, but keeping peace with Europe. Exactly. So it's better in a way than being warring and failing. And it's internally and externally that you're pursuing yeah. peace. Yeah. And also, of course, we have the King James Bible in 1611. Yeah. This is... It, he he patronises it and tells everyone you've got to go off and do all this sort of thing. And it fills the void of having one accepted translation. It's a major work of English prose, huge legacy. There were sort of six companies of these great academics of the age. So two in Oxford, two in Cambridge, two in Westminster, given all the various books the Bible to translate and they complete all the translations and it has a huge impact on the English language contributes 257 idioms I sort of phrases or sayings oh, right. I see. more than any other single source including Shakespeare yeah. these are some of the idioms that we get from the King James Bible okay. a cross to bear mm-hmm. a labour of love a wolf in sheep's clothing baptism of fire bite the dust give up the ghost Go the extra mile, which really surprised me. You'd have thought that was yeah. management speak yeah. now, but no, yeah. it's religious. People should look at their Bibles if they question that one. <laughs> the blind leading the blind, the powers that be, the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall? Yeah. Hmm. I haven't got the context for no, all no. these. But lots and lots of um, yeah. great phrases yeah, that still yeah. use today. It's a very influential text, a real cornerstone in English, mm. English language, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it's from King James himself. King James. This is also a very important period for cultural patronage. In theatre, Shakespeare, we have this under Elizabeth, but he writes for James as well. Some of his greatest plays, Macbeth, King Lear and The Tempest, all written in the reigns of uh, King James. Uh, Shakespeare also is there at Somerset House, providing the entertainments where they have that peace conference between England and Spain. Is he really? Shakespeare's there. I, I always think of him as Elizabethan, I don't assume him to be. But he is both. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Also, uh, other writers like John Webster and Ben Johnson. Um... Outside of theatre, we've got sort of poets like John Donne, a great romantic poet. George Chapman writes the first English translations of Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, which are these two foundations of Western literature, first time they've ever been translated into English, Mm. which is quite a big thing. And uh, Francis Bacon is a minister in James's court, very important, amongst other things, in scientific literature and methodology. He builds a racetrack and stand at Newmarket. Really? Yeah. Blimey. Which, of course, is... Well, not the stand itself isn't still there, but it's still a, <laughs> yeah. a horse racetrack. And golf. I knew this was Scottish. First mentioned in Scotland in 1457, Mary, apparently, Mary Queen of Scots, was accused of playing golf after her husband was murdered. Apparently, golf and uh, other sports that were clearly unacceptable to women, as they said at the time. So James and his courtiers brought golf from Scotland and introduced it to England. You've put that down as a saint... Well, it depends what you think of golf, but it's, uh, yeah. it's a big cultural influence, yeah, whatever true. you think. And as I said before, he's a very intellectual monarch, highly intelligent, a genuine intellectual, loved debating issues, wrote numerous treaties on all sorts of things like kingship and religion. Also a very curious man. He visited Stonehenge, commissioned Inigo Jones to investigate what its origins were. He concluded that uh, it was a Roman temple to the god of the sky, Kylas. Close. You know, contributed yes, to the debate. Yeah. Um, he also encouraged a man called Cornelius Drebbel, a Dutchman, who invented the first submarine. 
Oh, the little barrel thing. The little barrel thing. And yeah. he took James for a trip along the Thames. Did he really? Which means that James is the first bonnet to travel underwater. <laughs> and the second submariner. Yes. Ever. Yes. Wow. So that's another tick. That's brilliant. Big tick. And he is also pretty much the first famous campaigner against smoking. Yes, yeah. 1604, yeah. he writes a counterblast uh, to tobacco... Uh, imposes quite heavy excise taxes, writes of the damaging impact of passive smoking and the sort of base allure of smoking where people want to imitate our fellows and so prove ourselves capable of everything wherever they are capable, i.e. peer pressure. Yeah. And he wrote himself, it's a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs, and in the black stinking fume thereof, nearest resembling the horrible Stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. I hell. Well, I mean, he's got a couple of points. He's got a few points, though. He's quite ahead of his time. Mm. And as you asked, colonial settlements. Yeah. We do have some. Uh, in Virginia, he provides a charter to the Virginia Company in 1606, and various colonies are founded. Jamestown in 1607, Newfoundland 1610, and Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. So there's a bit more development yeah. of English colonialism there. And this is also the period at which Pocahontas oh, yeah, appears, yeah. famous Disney yeah. film. The tobacco planter John Rolfe married a daughter of a tribal leader who was Pocahontas. So she came over to England, along with her husband, was accorded ambassadorial status, and was around at court and given quite... Native American. On a Native American. In court, mm. not long after Elizabeth. That's weird. Very weird. That's amazing. Sadly, she died shortly after setting off to sail home in 1617, was buried at Gravesend. Oh, never made it home. Never made it home. Mm. But real-life story of Pocahontas, Mm. Reign of James. However, there are limitations to James in the colonial settlement. He loses interest in Virginia quite quickly, limits royal control, and also the fact that he hates tobacco is unfortunate because it is crucial to their economic prosperity, which is why Pocahontas and co. come back and say, please, let us trade in tobacco. It's all we've got. Also, most of the settlers who go in this period go independently, and they almost go in opposition the royal government. So this is in 1620 where we have the Pilgrim Fathers and the Mayflower. Yeah. Where religious dissenters, so fed up with England, go off to America. So it's debatable how much you can really credit James when people are leaving the country rather than being helped. Right. Okay, yeah. So they're, I mean, they're English, but going off against against the company that has a royal Mm. faction, yeah. So that's the good stuff for James, but... There's bad. There is some bad. In Ireland, as I said, the Ulster Plantation may have secured things for the time being, but not particularly nice for the native Irish to be kicked off their land for other people to come in. Colonisation rather than absorption. There's an oath of supremacy which dispossesses a lot of Catholics from um, government office. And there's huge resentment that this builds up, obviously, which in time will come to fruition. However, James does settle a pension upon uh, Trinity College. So, you know, pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Dublin Trinity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, yes, not an English one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's a bit of a lazy monarch. Despite being very clever, he basically spends all of his time hunting while his ministers do the work. Mm. Robert Cecil, 1612, dies largely from exhaustion from all of his efforts <laughs> doing all the work. Uh, he traverses the country going from various country houses. It's quite hard to actually get hold of him. Indeed, the Venetian ambassador, 1607, says that for this hunting, he throws off all business. And he's not very good at PR. Remember, Elizabeth's really good at cultivating the royal image, that relationship with uh, her yeah, subjects, she, yeah. the portraits, etc. James, very impatient when required to sit for portraits, and um, he really didn't like the idea of being popular with his people. Spent most of his time hunting, so people rarely saw him. 
And he was very impatient whenever he was forced to make his way through crowds of people wanting to look at him. He was like, oh, come on. Get out the way. Indeed. <laughs> and then when he was once told that the public just wanted to look upon his face, he responded, and I won't do the accent because I can't, God's wounds, I will pull down my breeches and they shall also see my ass." <laughs> this guy's brilliant. <laughs> so he not quite got the common touch no. in the way that Elizabeth did. As he's also covered, he fails in his attempts to have Great Britain mm. made a political unity. His arguments for it, he says, Hath he, God, not made us all in one island, compassed with one sea, and of itself by nature, indivisible? Mm. He also praises Alfred the Great for the role that he did in the Saxon, the Heptarchy. He had the seven different kingdoms, he brought them into one. And of course, the union with Wales, bringing that together, he's saying, Would England and Scotland not be stronger by linking themselves in the way that we've done before? Is this not all just part of the process? I think he's right. Makes sense. Commons refuse equal rights to Scots. The lawyers argue that Great Britain has never existed as a country, and so for, in order for it actually to come into existence, you would have to create it by dissolving England and Scotland. So you'd have to get rid of England and Scotland to turn them into Great Britain. So all the old countries, the laws, the customs, the treaties would mm. all be null and void, mm. and they'd sort of have to start from scratch. Mm. So I always say it's, it's much more trouble than it's worth. They're lying Ted. <laughs> and there's Anglo-Scottish tension. The only solution acceptable to England would have been annexing Scotland. Mm. And um, like they're done with Wales, and Scotland doesn't want to be annexed by England. No, I, that's why I thought having a shared king gives them the perfect out. Mm. Both of them save face. Yeah. And nothing ever changes. The big concern for the English is that the Scots will just flood south and take all their jobs. But, you know, he is the first king of Great Britain, even if it's not politically, yeah. legally, technically true. And the Union flag. Yeah, so it's got some stuff there. Finance, however, bad. Bad, 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 bad. 1610, the situation. Despite massive land sales, there was crown debt of around £280,000, and the annual expenditure was £511,000. Yeah. So it's getting worse and worse, yeah. quite dramatically. And James, of course, unlike Elizabeth, has a wife and children to maintain. Mm. And Parliament, they failed 1610, the great contract... These adult parliament, various others, they refuse subsidies to any significant level. And James himself is very extravagant. In Scotland, he'd been poor. His annual revenue was just £50,000 a year. In 1604, he spent £47,000 just on jewellery. Really? Um, about £30,000 a year he spent on his favourites, £20,000 on the coronation, 17000 on Elizabeth's funeral. Anne of Denmark loved extravagant clothes and jewellery, so they are spending like mad. Yeah. And James is probably financially illiterate. He just doesn't understand what it all means. Though so one stage, apparently, Robert Cecil stacked gold coins in piles so that James could actually see how much he was prepared. To, he was actually proposing to spend on something. Basically, just lined all the coins up and said, "That is how much this is going to cost." Really? So yes. he just wasn't tutored in in maths, or anything? just didn't seem to get it. Well, he probably was tutored in maths, but he just didn't didn't, didn't click. No. Um, however, in fairness to James, he does inherit a tricky position. Henry VII had appropriated lots of money from all of his nobles by sort of slightly dodgy means. Henry VIII had dissolved the monasteries. Elizabeth had alienated crown land. So basically everything that there is in England has been squeezed out. Mm. So in 1603, there's nothing left. Mm. And James has got a bit of an impossible, thankless task. Well, you, could see, you can see a parallel there between the, as the money was running out, more and more Parliament power. Indeed, because mm. they're, they're the only people that can get him the money. Yeah. And, of course, Parliament is the big um, sort of stick for James and his reign. 
In Scotland, the Parliament had negligible power and it really just represented a noble clique. Um, and James had a bit of a shock when he dealt with the English Parliament. He'd previously written about the divine right of kings. He believed that his will was God's will and mm. that should be that. So he was a bit surprised when he had a Parliament that just refused to do what he wanted yeah. it to do. Um, and as he said, various failures in financial terms, lots of conflict. Um, 1621, we mentioned where Parliament entered a protest in its journals. Yeah about its privileges. James was so cross about this that he dissolved Parliament and then by his own hand tore the petition out from the journal, <laughs> tore the page out by his own hand. He was so cross. Wow. Wow. So, you know, not particularly good. He was indeed um, actually said, I'm surprised that my ancestors should have permitted such an institution to come into existence. Yeah, so was he actively fighting against it to dissolve it? Or? Not to actually dissolve Parliament. When we say he dissolves Parliament, that just means that yeah, he says, right... Yeah, that season, sort of. Yes, we'll go off on our extended mm. summer holiday. And a lot of people have seen this as the sort of beginnings that lead towards the Civil War. Yeah. And the difficulties of Charles I. Yeah. So a questionable legacy there. Yeah. On the other hand, he does do a lot to be pragmatic. He does back down when things are unpopular. And he promotes Tired. discussion, yeah. So there, there were some big positives to subjectivity, but also some big negatives. Yeah, there's a lot. Mm. A real, a very, a very lot. And it's hard to... Uh... It's, hard, yeah, it's hard to get a grip of them all at once. So, peaceful, tick. Right. Yeah. Religious settlement, I think that ties in with the peaceful thing, allowing discussion. Mm. Good government as well, allowing discussion of, on different points. Uh, intellectual, yeah. Lots of good cultural, yeah, good stuff. cultural stuff. King James Bible, for which you can take some of the credit in starting it all off. Golf. <laughs> Golf, yeah. Um, so good. So basically, peaceful, balanced, wants different viewpoints. Bad. Mm. Kicks the Irish out of Ireland, out of Ulster. Yeah. Um, lazy, that's fine. I'm lazy. <laughs> PR, funny. Yes. Um, Great Britain, Bit of a fail, but went some way to achieving it's it. It's important to start. Important start. So we've got Ireland. Rubbish with finance. Very rubbish. On a personal and political level. And not very good at controlling Parliament. So against that, we've got the good stuff. I think the good outweighs it there. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think when he died, people were sad, mm. the public. They generally thought, you know what, it's been pretty steady. Mm. And it's been good. And, and it was funny. It sounds like you've got some sort of weird Rabsy Nesbitt Prince Philip Henry the Sixth sort of figure. Henry the figure, yeah. yeah. And I'd be sad if he went. Mm. I think that'd be fun. I'm going six. Mm. It's more good than bad. More good than bad. Um, actually, if you and it's maybe seven because if you're if you were a um, yeah a subject, mm. having more parliament power is a good thing. Yes, whether you credit James for not being able to no. yeah, do it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going seven. I think it was fun. I'm gonna give him a six. I think I think it was quite good, but he he does fail on some of his main policies. Oh, and I kept forgetting about that Ireland thing. No, yeah, thing. no, I'll go I'll stick. I'll I'll stick. So that's thirteen for scan- uh, subjectivity, which yeah, again mm. isn't too bad. Longevity. He rules in England from sixteen oh three to sixteen twenty five, which is twenty two years and it's three days. Not, oh, because he's quite old, isn't he? So it is basically twenty two. Yeah. Which we put that in comes with a score of six point nine two. Right. He was actually ruled Scotland for 57 years, which is longer than any of his predecessors. And if you... If, so 57 years is some way to being the longest ever British. Yes. If you were, I mean, that's like second, is it? Or third now? Um, maybe third now. But mm. we don't credit him for the Scottish years. Yeah. So 6.92 for English longevity. Dynasty, not the programme. 
He has two surviving children, Elizabeth and Charles. It's quite sad. They actually had seven children in total, of whom three survived to adulthood. But there's one, Prince Henry, the oldest son, a very promising young man, athletic, a keen sportsman, a manly bearing, very much in contrast to James, much more popular than his father. But in 1612, he died from typhoid fever at 18 years old. Body lay in state for four weeks. A thousand people walked in a mile on cortege to Westminster Abbey to pay their respects. An insane man ran around naked claiming that he was Henry's uh, ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's an interesting counterfactual debate. If that Henry was the man that should have been king after James and instead ended up being Charles, who, of course, ultimately civil war, etc., everything could have been very different. Yeah. But he did die and James only had two children, so that gives him a dynasty score of 3.34. So his overall score is 37.26. None too bad. Which, well, it's, it's not very high. It's not very good, no. So we now have to consider, all of that in mind, whether or not he has that mark of greatness, that long-lasting achievement, that legacy, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! I can't give it to him. It's a shame. I mm. think he was funny. And it turns out that counts for quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, just really good fun. Imagine his court mm. would have been a laugh. Yeah. Um, and he himself had quite a good sense of humour, fairly informal. Yeah. And the people had peace. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's I good. Just... It's the, he's sort of one of those who he, he, he kind of set out his stall at Sartre and said, we're going to have peace, we're going to have Great Britain, we're going to sort out the finance, we've got this great Bible coming out. It's going to be great. <laughs> love it, yeah. And then they did have peace, but people kind of wanted war. <laughs> he called himself King of Great Britain, but politically he didn't actually make it happen. The finance was still rubbish. So it, he sort of... They loved the Bible, though. They got it took that. a while, actually, for the Bible to really settle in, actually. It oh, wasn't really? initially accepted. Ultimately, it was, mm-hmm. and it was incredibly important. At the time, it did take a while. Okay. So he, 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 he kind of goes for the Rex Factor. He does, doesn't he? He, he goes quite for pull the it off. punch. He maybe came, became king a little bit too late. Yeah. At 37. Yeah. And stuck in his ways, stuck in his Scottish mm. ways. I think if we were doing, like, a uh, First Division or a Conference League, he'd be well up there. Because everyone yeah. knows King James. Mm. And everyone knows that he's... Um, around that period, but not much more. There's no there, yeah. other than the gunpowder plot. There's no, there's no image you can really yeah. draw of like, like you can of Henry VIII or Elizabeth. Mm. And I think for that, he just doesn't mm. get it. So your final is a no. But I liked him. Yeah, and it's a no for me as well. And I, I agree. He was um, he's quite a nice one to do after yeah. the choosing Elizabeth. So that's it for James the First. He doesn't have the Rex Factor, but he was an entertaining uh, yeah. companion yeah, well for the episode. Done. Well done, James. So, next time we will be doing his son, Charles I, and of course the the, uh, Civil War, or the War of Three Kingdoms. So, that's it. Goodbye for me. Goodbye for me.